I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hello and welcome back. It's Allison. You're right. I wasn't here last week. For you regulars who have been checking in for my Monday uploads for my new podcast, I took a holiday and I had a lovely time away. And um, in my earlier years, I probably would have tried to cram two podcasts into one week so that there was no skip in the delay of service to you. But in my older, wiser years, I've realized people are flexible and I don't have to bend myself into a pretzel (laughs) and I'm allowed to have a holiday too. I know. So I just uh, took a week off to celebrate my 57th birthday. So there's my wisdom of of many years, 20-something years of of being self-employed that I can actually shut down the email, put away social media not feel obligated and take some time for myself. So some walk in the talk of good self-care. So thank you. And sorry, I I did not deliver my podcast last week, but here we are back this week. And I've got three questions. The first one, I'm going to read it to you and then I'll, I'll give you some context to it. And, and uh, so it just came in. Some people write quite lengthy and others just really give me a short snippet. And this is a short snippet. And it says, um, I have more basic issues, bedtime and getting him with health issues to feel safe enough to go out and do things again. He lost a cousin to a drunk driver and hates alcohol. I know out of context that feels like a disjointed question, but let me give you some context. This would have arrived shortly after I would have done one of my Facebook Lives that I'm doing. I have a series of about six of them that'll be going over um, the summer and into the back-to-school period in early September. And the Facebook Live series is called Hashtag Family Talk. And it's a program that I've been doing for multiple years now that is um, an initiative to help reduce underage drinking. And we're targeting the um, approach uh, to 
have parents change their attitudes and behaviors and give give them the skills and tools and confidence to address underage drinking in order to then be the change agent uh, to help reduce underage drinking. And um, this program has proven to be successful along with other programs that we really are doing a good job. The majority of minors in Canada now do not underdrink, um, but we still have a ways to go. And so this person, I'm assuming, had watched my podcast because she is talking about the fact that this uh, child actually lost a cousin to, uh, to, to, to drunk driving. And you can imagine the impact that that would have had. And I'm, I'm sorry for your loss. And I'm sorry that um, your child had to experience that loss early in their life as well. So um, it would make sense to me that they, um, that they are likely going to have a different relationship with alcohol because they are one of the people that had a firsthand contextual experience that touched their lives uh, around the negative consequences that come from drinking. And uh, and that's one of the principal points of the program, uh, that often our kids hear a very glorified version of what happens with alcohol. And in reality, there's all kinds of damaging and negative effects that kind of get buried, and we need to bring those to the fore. Um, so if, you, if you're interested, my e-newsletter, I uh, let everyone know when I am putting on an event so you can subscribe through my website at allison at allisonshafer.com. But they're also all archived on my YouTube channel if you hadn't checked that out yet. I have a YouTube channel that has multiple playlists. And so one of them is the hashtag Family Talk series. But there's also ones on family meetings and some other gems in there. So I encourage you to go poke around in in those as well. The the family meeting one is fun because it's actually my kids and my home home video footage of uh, of how those look and how those go. And they're not always pretty, but I, I, they're very educative. So here are her basic issues, bedtime and, and um, getting him to feel safe enough to go out again. And I'm assuming that that go out again is what a lot of us are facing, which is after you've been through a pandemic. And in order to explain to our kids, you know, we can't leave the house, we have to stay home, everything's closed, there's this germ out there that's killing people. Well, my goodness, how are you suddenly going to say, okay, you can go out? Because they know the pandemic is still on. And this is going to be a increasingly important conversation because here in Ontario, I can say in, in Ontario, the last few regions to finally make it to stage three, Toronto just will be going to stage three this Friday. But it's still been pretty tight and locked down in the big uh, city here um, because of the uh, community spread numbers still. And so understanding this pandemic is is complex. It's complex for the policymakers. It's complex for parents to understand. It's just that much more complex for kids to understand. And if you're somebody who was worried about getting sick yourself or potentially making somebody else sick because you were carrying the germ, and we've been telling that narrative for a while, and now we're suddenly going to say, oh, but now you're supposed to go out again. What a leap of faith, you know, what a leap of faith for our kids. Um, so I think there's many parents who will have anxious children and many parents who are still anxious themselves. And so how are we going to approach this? I think the best way is, first of all, always to honor feelings, you know, that not never to deny the truth of somebody's subjective experience of emotion. So it sounds like you're really nervous. It looks like you're really scared. You're letting me know you're not ready yet. And so we can reflect back all those things. But at the same time, if we're going to 
help our child build their courage, then we have to be as courageous and provide as much of a feeling of safety so that we're infectious in the other direction. You know, they look to us for their safety. So if we acquiesce and just say, yeah, you're right, you probably shouldn't go, in a sense, we're validating there's a reason to be scared. Yet, we can't flood them with an experience that's too great for them to be able to handle. That's also traumatic. So I get that it's a very tricky line. It's a very tricky line to both model security and safety to educate them about the fact that, and she doesn't give an age here, but, you know, if we're listening to the information from our health officials and authorities, they're telling us that as they're learning about this virus, that although there is some occurrences of some form of complications that can happen with children, under the age of 10, it really, they don't seem to have the protein that creates the problem. So they're um, in part of the safe safe cohort. Can we say completely safe? No. But neither is walking across the street. You know, neither is going skiing. Neither is getting in a car, even with a seatbelt. So there's always risk associated with life. And um, But how do we get them to build the courage? How do we get them to, to uh, want to venture out? And part of it is just like, any other anxiety-provoking experience is to learn to have tolerance for that anxiety and to sort of um, have the experience that I was fearful of a perceived threat and I didn't think I had the inner resources, but now I had a small taste of that experience and I didn't get fully overwhelmed. And what I thought that was going to happen didn't happen. And and we sort of get more evidence and try to exhaust that experience, decrease the perception of threat, and also increase the perception of the individual's talents to be able to endure, tolerate, persist, push on through those negative feelings. So if you're waiting for your kid to be completely non-anxious, it's not really the solution to anxiety. It's about tolerating anxiety and to make it not limit our lives. Uh, And so you might think about small baby steps that tests their courage. You know, what would they feel comfortable with? Could they go out into the driveway? Would they be okay with just one friend? Would they be okay just with you going to the park? Would it make them feel comfortable if you went to the grocery store? And maybe they don't go all the way in. Maybe they need to sit in the car with a parent again, depending on their age, but to go out and see that life is starting to look normal. They see people on patios, they see people walking down the street, and to continue to grow their experiences. Because as we start to get back to September, depending on your school board and um, and your own feelings about it as well, uh, it's likely that there's going to be a, a continued progress towards getting our kids back together again because the benefits of our kids socializing with one another in that age group um, has all kinds of um, merit and benefits that, in a sense, as we weigh benefits to risk, and because the risk is so low and the benefit is so high, we really want to be moving in that direction. So that would be something that you could start uh, talking to your child about um, at home, sharing that knowledge, building up that courage, getting their their resources, and, and doing some uh, emotional uh, tolerance type things. Of course, if they've got full-blown anxiety, there's all kinds of people that can work one-on-one with them uh, as well. But um, so I hope that's helpful. And the going to bed, you know, I you didn't say specifically what the going to bed issue was, but I will say, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, that one of the problems about going to sleep 
is it's you're you're no longer distracted by the busyness of the day and that's when the mind gets busy and some kids get that secondary benefit of you know having extra one-on-one parental time as you try to soothe them. And what we really want to do is teach them to soothe themselves, that jumping into your bed or having you lie beside them and all those other great things, they work in the short term for sure, but it's not really an effective coping strategy. It's not really helping them to to work with their racing mind. So I think one thing that's very, again, normalizing to their emotion is to say, you know, a lot of people uh, get anxious at bedtime. And one of the things they get anxious about is getting anxious that they're going to be anxious at bedtime. And it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So um, one great thing that you can do just on your own is to download some of the wonderful free resources of meditation, guided meditations that they have for kids. Um, I love Kids Evolve. They've got a great program. Uh, there's also self-hypnosis podcasts and apps as well that are effective. Uh, I like 10% Happier, but some of these are geared more to, towards adults. But Calm, there's many for kids that are specifically designed for helping kids go to sleep at night. And so I know that we don't like technology at night, but if you have your little ear pods in and you can listen to some of those, um, that can help them get over that little hump as well. And uh, and to let them know that they're not alone and to to work to learn how to find the gear shift in their own mind. So sometimes it could be helpful to say something like, so, you know, pay attention to your anxiety. Where do you feel it in your body? Are you focused in on that? Is there a way now that you can make yourself more anxious, get yourself more worried, get that feeling to grow? And let me know if you can do that. And if they can accomplish making it more anxious, then you said, oh, look at that. So you've actually realized that you are driving this because you found the accelerator pedal. Um, and if you're driving it, then, you know, instead of accelerating it, can you turn the volume down and go in the other direction on that same dial that you just controlled to make it go up? Can you can control it to go back down? And again, I'm just some some tips and things that that you can try. And certainly, depending on the level of severity of the anxiety and the child's past history and, you know, there might be some small T traumas and things to work out. Um, But sometimes really helping our kids to feel that sense of agency, that we feel like these thoughts arbitrarily push in and then we fight with them. So having that agency, not getting so engaged in them, and also dropping out of the mind and into the body. We're such a mind-centric culture, you know? Was it Descartes? I think, therefore, I am. We're so mind-focused. Our identity is so hooked on our thoughts, but the brain is just an organ. I'd love someone who had their identity around their pancreas, you know, their identity around their stomach. These things are all, our body and our brain and our thoughts, our consciousness, our mind, they're they're all connected. And so a lot of why we go drop into the body and into the sensations is to get us out of the brain and to get to turn the volume down on that and to realize from a holistic point of view that we're also able to pay attention to sensations. And sensations are less, you know, they can be intense, prickly, hot, you know. Um, but when we drop back into the body, sometimes that quiets the noise of the brain, which just becomes more like white noise, distraction. It's, it's, it's this irritating rumble. Um, but 
Maybe we can feel pressure. Maybe we can feel heat. Maybe we can feel tightness. And uh, if your kids go to bed tired and they have a good wind-down schedule and you can get them to get out of their mind and down into their body, some deep breathing, which um, changes the activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, uh, get them to focus on their body. Sometimes that will just shut down, shut down that clatter. Um, so hopefully that's a little bit of help for you there um, without any more specific details. I think that's maybe general enough for you. Okay, question number two. I have a 13 and 10-year-old boys and a five-year-old girl. The 10-year-old boy is so competitive. He will also not accept when he loses. It's not just with siblings either. It's a Whether it's a family game or a neighborhood sport, even with his friends' online video games, I have witnessed him cheat, cry, and argue until everyone quits or no one will ask him to play. Thanks for your help. Love the podcast. Well, and thank you for the question, and thank you for listening to the podcast. So, again, I go back to Adlerian psychology and some of our principles, and in order to understand behavior, we have to look at the lifestyle of the child, the private logic. What are they? What, what operating rules did they make up for themselves that manifests in what behavior looks like and the goals that they're trying to do with their behavior. So I'm always asking, like Sherlock Holmes, what would have to be true for this behavior to make sense? And knowing that from a developmental point of view that a child comes into the world, big eyes, undeveloped brain, trying to find their place of belonging, try to find their significance. And could it be that in our culture, not necessarily your family culture, but even just in our larger family culture, that in Western society, as opposed to other places, maybe around the planet, that we're very individualistic and we are very competitive. We don't like to admit that, but there's much that we emphasize and celebrate and give importance to around besting. We're always trying to optimize and be your best and, you know, uh, improve yourself and it's so performance-based. You know, it's not who you are. It's what you do. You know, you, oh, you stacked three blocks up. Let's all clap and cheer and take a picture. Um, oh, you rode your bike. And so besting, being better than, is a message that kids get in just so many different ways. And here he is wedged between an older sibling and a little baby girl. And how is he going to find his place in the family? You know, we often say that number two children are kind of like the Avis rent-a-car. They're like, well, I'll try harder, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not the head of the pack, but boy, I'm going to use my drive and ambition to just try to overtake, try to overdo, surpass. There's a surpassing drive in a second-born child. And so one way to know that you have surpassed is, is to beat, to win, you know, I won the game. I must have surpassed. I got the higher mark. I must have surpassed. That's just, there's so many ways that we tell kids that that's a way of evaluating them. And so if you, ha if you in an early age in life and development, you come to the conclusion that one way that I know that I am significant and important is when I'm winning. That could, that's what we would call private logic. It's part of their belief system erroneous, made at a young age, made subjective perception from early experiences. So what it means is, is that when you have that belief, just understand that to know that you need to be best to be worthwhile, you must win to be worthwhile. The opposite of that is if I didn't win, I came in second. To them, 
the thinking is, and if I don't win, I'm worthless. I must win to be worthwhile. If I don't win, I'm worthless. And so that's very sad, but it helps you to understand and have some compassion for why he is so upset when this happens. He's losing his worth. He's he's lost his position. So this is a very big psychological threat. And you might be going, oh, it's just a game. You can play again tomorrow. Oh, sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. But we're really not getting at the heart of what the issue is here, which is to really challenge what worth is really about. And so we might help him to understand this private logic because, you know, it's um, not only is it private in that it goes against common sense, but it's private in the sense that it happens at a pre-conscious level. He does not know that this is how he orders the world. He thinks everyone orders the world this way. He thinks he's come to understand life as it is. Um, but, of course, it's through the the skewed perception of of, of his creation and so we need to to challenge that creation, and we can only do that if we bring it into his conscious awareness. And so one way that we do that is is sort of through some revealing. And depending on the age, I mean, he's ten. Um, we could we could do things sort of after the age of eight. There's a change in in kids' um, abilities if we look at what Piaget talks about in different developmental stages, but. Um, but we can also do it more metaphorically. Um, it really, and different kids have different capacities that way. But the idea is we want to let him know the, the mischief he's making for himself. And so we could say it in a non-threatening way, like something like, you know, it seems to me like winning is really important to you, which he, and he'd like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it sounds, and again, you're just, you're trying to, it sounds like these, I'm trying to say it as a hypothesis. I don't want to say, I know you better than you. Um, and and we're just making guesses here. I don't know this whole thing. I haven't met this family, haven't worked with this child. So we always have to humble ourselves to say, we don't really know. We're just checking it out. Um, but if we get close to the truth, what happens is it moves from the pre-conscious mind to the conscious mind, and you'll get something called that recognition reflex. And you'll get that little glimmer in the eye, the little smirk in the face, a little something that they're like, and honestly, it's coming to their mind for the first time. Like, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's my truth. That's right. Yeah. So could it be, could it be, it seems like those kind of questions, um, it's really important to you that you win. You know, could it be that when you lose, you actually think that you're less important to people? Do you think maybe that you feel less than other people when you're not winning? And when you're winning, you're assured that you're important to people and that you have some, some status and importance to your friends or to your family? Um, and again, are they going to sit and have a, you know, 10-year-old version of an intellectual conversation around that? Probably not. But you've now opened their eyes to something. And it also means then that we can speak to their feelings of inferiority and find other ways, other ways besides just winning to prove their worth. So one of the ways that we really want to hone in on is that all of us have wonderful skills and talents that are within each wonderful, unique individual. And we're called to use those talents and strengths and to, to illuminate them for our kids and to put them in the service of others. So do a strengths inventory. What is this child really good at? What are their, what, what, where do you see them shine? And how do we take that talent um, and move it towards something that could be helpful in the family? And um, 
And it may be that he's a really great game guy. And you might say, you know, you're a great game guy. Why don't you organize the game night or whatever? But we also want to keep reinforcing that when you get upset at losing, what you're really showing is your sort of vulnerabilities. And that doesn't actually, if he's so concerned with prestige and importance and proving himself that, you know, it's really a sign of discouragement when we show that poor sportsmanship. You know, you would like us to have as high opinion of you as a winner. Well, you don't have to worry about that. You are already a winner to me. You don't have to do or win or achieve or accomplish or A plus anything. Just right now, as you are, you are lovable. And to be able to say, oh, you have a pretty high bar for yourself. You somehow think that you are only okay when you are at the top of your game. But you know what? You're okay when you're just trying and when you're just being and even when you're losing. So I, I want to give them the feeling that when you show bad sportsmanship, rather than it showing, well, I'm good enough and I should have won and I want you to keep this high opinion of me, I want them to think that, you know, perhaps this is showing more low opinion, which is not what they want. They want people to have a high opinion of them. And so I'm sort of spitting in their soup and making it distasteful to to show poor sportsmanship because now we're in the opposite direction of their goal, if that makes sense. And again, you can do this in metaphor. You can do this in storytelling. You can pick themes of this up in the movie where you're not talking about him, but you might just be shedding the light. Do you think that that boy got so upset because he lost the game because he thinks that's the only way that people will like him or whatever? Do you think that's true? Do you think his friends really like him? Look how they came and circled around him or whatever. Um so play with those ideas and uh, just load up on that encouragement, which again is like, uh, I'll just point you to other podcasts that I've done about the difference between praise and encouragement, which is a really important construct. Again, that tying of our 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 worth, our human worth, and our, our ego uh, gets so connected to producing and winning and, and all that bettering. And encouragement really just puts the focus on right now, as you are, you're everything you need to be. It's an unconditional love, an unconditional regard. And yeah, I'm going to celebrate when you reach your goals, but your lovability and your worth is never tied to your performance. And that isn't a one-time conversation. That's an experience of being in relationship with an encouraging parent. And so it's changing a lot of our parenting styles, um, focusing much more on contribution, focusing on effort, improvement, persistence, rather than the perfect end final goal. And we just don't focus on that in, in our North American culture. We don't in schools. We don't in sports. We don't in so many things. So we need to shift that lens, and I think that will bring that down. Will it be immediate? No, but it'll be over time. And I'm glad you asked me at 10 because that's, um, that's a good early, um, it's easier to change a child's private logic at this age because between 10 to, to, you know, early adulthood, we really are taking those private logics and, and we're, well, sorry, from zero to say, I don't know, everyone sort of disagrees on this. I've never heard a firm number. Maybe it's because we can't prove it scientifically, but somewhere between five, six, before you start heading off into, into your grade school years, we have our sort of formulation of our basic personality and a lot of our private logic is already established. 
And then we start from, you know, 10 to 17, young adulthood. Then we're starting to test those hypotheses. You know, is it true? And we start to create situations that are biased towards creating evidence that supports our our private logic. So they're still malleable. This is still a, ch- a time of great change. And so um, you've got lots of time to, to, to work on moving that private logic more in line with common sense. And so we can start with being more encouraging, bringing that that pre-conscious, unconscious, private logic into into conscious awareness so it can be worked on. Okay, next question. This is a little bit longer here, but worth the read. Hi, Allison. I love your nude podcast and appreciate all your help and tips always. Well, thank you for that. I, like many parents, have been home with my babies, 13 and 9. Okay, maybe not babies anymore. (laughs) Since March 13th, my kids are thoughtful, helpful, and great humans. I love this time together, but of course, it has highlighted some areas of growth for us as a family. One of the biggest areas is my kids' relationship. Our daughter, 9, has shown many signs during our time at home that she is very jealous of her brother, 13, and in turn tries to point out his faults, tries to get him in trouble, and overall, trying to get him to lose, for lack of a better word. This is shocking and getting worse. She is a very loving girl who gets a lot of attention from both her parents, but cannot handle it if she perceives that her brother is winning. Another area that seems to cause her great pain or trigger her is if he corrects her on facts or information, sometimes done in teen, smarter-than-everyone-else tone, but mostly just done out of kindness or matter-of-factly. She turns into my pet monster, causing constant fighting as we spend 24-7 together. Help! What can we do to help in the situation? We try to make their relationship about them, but this is constantly happening, and I do tend to find myself asking her to please stop because I'm worried about the effects of our son, but know this must come from a feeling of lack from our daughter. And then I do just have to finish this last little piece that she sent to me as well. She says, thank you. And I must share... Um, that you play a huge role in our uh, favorite family stories. So I do want to share this. Our son, when younger, wouldn't stay in his room at bedtime. So you suggested a hook and eye lock on the door. We used it one time and he never needed it again. Consequences. But we left it on his door as a visual reminder and possible tool. When we moved homes, he begged us and actually called his first family meeting at age three to express why he needed to not move the hook and eye. We still laugh about it. And P.S., we did not put it up here. Your advice matters and helps families tremendously. So thank you about that. So for people, I'm going to work backwards in answering this question. I'll go to the the bedroom story first. So a lot of kids come out of their bedrooms, and one of the things that I explain to parents is that we can't change the children, but we can change the environment. And we can say that if you're able to control yourself and stay in your room, that's where you're supposed to be at bedtime, then that's great. You can have your door open and and stay there. But if you have trouble with that, that's similar to putting up a baby gate or whatever, um, or the side of a crib when they're infants, we need to secure that room. And don't do this as a uh, something that I would do for years. This is just training. And to her point, she only had to do it once. And we would never leave a kid sleeping in a locked room because we need to make sure they're safe. But just for the bedtime routine to put that lock on. And so rather than holding the door and getting into a physical altercation, screaming between the doors and holding the doorknob, going banging, 
Um, you know, they see it's very definitive. It's very objective. They see it hanging there. And when they have that first opportunity, they will probably test it, come out of their room, and you'll say, oh, you know, I see you need some help. Here you go. Walk them back to bed, close the door, and say, I guess we need the hook and eye on. We can secure the door for you. And um, so, again, most people hate the idea, but the truth is one time, a couple of hours of testing that limit and boundary, saying what you mean, meaning what you say, being firm and friendly, then the problem is over. And when you compare that to what could be months and years of yelling at your kids every night, which one do you think is more dramatically harmful for a kid? That that few hours of stress of you that you've told them about in advance, you've given them an opportunity to choose, now you're just following through on what you said. So if you find that that's helpful for your little kids, there you go. Here's proof in the pudding that it helps. So um, that's great. So clearly they've been following me for a while if that was when he was three and, and now we're looking at uh, kids years later here at uh, nine and 13. So this sort of you know, dovetails onto the earlier question about these siblings, only in this case, it's like the correcting of of one another, the one-upmanship, not so much just the having to win, and this looks like it's more specific, but it still speaks to the idea that kids so easily get this mindset that there's this measuring rod, and this is what praise and competition does. It, again, that idea that our, our worth gets hooked to, to our performance. And if you have to correct me, if I have to show that I made a mistake or I'm not the best or um, you have to sh- show my shortcomings, that I somehow get reduced in value and you get raised up in value. And that's what a simple child's brain thinks as if, you know, love is, there's a scarcity mentality there. And I love Jane Nelson's idea of trying to demonstrate this with young kids with like a cupcake where or a birthday cake and you put candles on it to show that love is not just like a cake. You know, here's how much I love uh, my first child and it's represented by the cake. And then when I had you, I had to cut the cake in half. And now somehow my eldest child that came first only has half a cake and I had to split the other half of my love with my child. And if I had four kids, they'd only get a quarter cake, only a quarter of my love. Love is not divisive. It's not a concrete thing. That there is capacity to love and have space in every family, an abundance capacity. There is room and love for all. And love is a verb. It's something that we generate. And there is a place for all. And there is a value to all. And it doesn't have to be earned in this way. So this competitive mindset comes from the idea that there is somehow this measuring rod and that your ego and your value can go up or down. And that's that scarcity, competitive, praise-based kind of mindset that so many kids make. And we need to correct for that simple uh, mistake. And I mentioned this in my, my earlier one. So I remember a story, and I believe it was Rudolf Dreikers, maybe it was Adler, but I believe that it was a Dreikers story where he was working with a child, and what he had said to the child was he was trying to show him that when he put down other people, that it really showed that he didn't have his own strength to look big in his, of his own merit and value. And sort of like the Napoleon complex, you know, if you're small, you have to bark big. And so every time you bark big or insult someone or put someone else down, it really just means that you're feeling small. And um, so you can do this with kids. You know, you can literally push one person's head down and say, do you think you need to make her look small in order to make you look big? 
And I guess he taught this construct to this child and did the same thing about the revealing of the goal or the private logic, the spitting in the soup, not making it look, you know, not to have its benefit as it had before. And the way that that he would manage this is that when he was describing this to the child and revealing the goal to the child— and showing them the the sort of the mischief they were making for themselves, he actually like st- lifted up on his tippy toes to make himself taller, to show you're trying to make you know you're trying to make yourself look bigger with these gestures, but you're still just you. Put your heels back on the ground. You're already enough. You don't need to raise yourself up this way. And so whenever this child would start to display this behavior again, all he would do is just to give this visual of standing up on his toes as a reminder, there you go again, that's you trying to make yourself look bigger, you don't need to. And so again, I I would say just use the the information from the the earlier um, um, question that I answered. And then we also have to go to this point, like being corrected, like, you know, nobody in a sense likes to, to, to be corrected, really, certainly not publicly, probably doesn't do this on his own. He probably does it in front of the parents. So he knows that she's got some vulnerabilities about not being perfect, not knowing it all, not knowing everything. And I would continue to emphasize the idea that it's okay not to know everything, that it's okay to make mistakes. And I would not just say that as a, a verbal moral, I would literally model it. You know, when when you say words wrong, when you make mistakes, when you don't know everything, say, oh, I, that's a new word. I didn't know that. I think I was misspelling that. I think I'm going to go look that up. Or, you know, cook a new recipe and say, oh, you know, I, I didn't make that right. I didn't understand it needed to be like under the broiler so long. I, I undercooked that. Um, I'm really learning. I'm learning a lot. So that you can model that we're all growing, we're all learning. There's all things that we knew before that we didn't didn't know. And um, you might point out to her, you know, do you think maybe he might be pointing that out to you because he likes to rile you up and get you upset? He likes to get your goat, as we used to say in my generation. Do you think that if he's trying to push your buttons that you could just deactivate the fuse panel and just don't let him get what he's trying to do, which is to get you upset? You could just say, thank you. I didn't know that's how, how it was pronounced. Thank you for helping me out probably wouldn't be as fun for him anymore. So you could also coach her around that. But I think um, we want to move away from one of the mistakes we make, which is often in families that have competitive kids, you know, is to um, make sure that we're not trying to make things fair, as in equal. So you'll often find in competitive families that, well, you know, if I got five minutes of story time with mommy, then I get five minutes of story time with daddy tomorrow. Or, um, you know, he's got one scoop of ice cream, so I should get one scoop of ice cream. And he got new running shoes, so I should get new running shoes. And we can get really wrapped up into this comparator of of one another so that everything's like all even Steven, so nobody's ahead. But that actually primes the pump for competition. And so instead, it's better just to reflect and say, hey, it doesn't matter what your brother has. Do you have enough ice cream for you? And, you know, we have time for everybody. And right now it's his story time. So if you'd like more story time, we'll need to figure that out. Or, you know, your running shoes aren't worn out. When yours are needed, then we'll look into that for you. So trying to just make it more based on getting everyone's needs met, not 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 comparing externally to other people. That's really keeping a scorecard. And then I think the part that's also really difficult for parents, and I don't know how things are going in your relationship, but often it is a competitive nature between parents that set the tone for a competitive household. So yes, culture does it, but do check in. 
Who gets their way? Who, uh, you know, how is the power distributed in your family? Are you more collaborative and cooperative? Or is there a lot of scorekeeping and keeping up and judgment happening in the marriage? Is there more scarcity around that going on? And maybe you want to check into that too. Um, and maybe we need to do a whole marriage podcast. So, <laughs> uh, so I will wrap up for today. Uh, but if you do have questions, I love to uh, have more material for the podcast. So you can look into the show notes, email me at allison and allisonshafer.com, and you'll get details on my upcoming Facebook Lives if you sign up for my e-newsletter. And stay well, stay healthy, and I hope this has been helpful. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast, so thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.